Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. An Erio's original. Each week, we decide who's to blame for a historical tragedy. And each week, you tell us if we got it right. My name is Rebecca Delgado-Smith, and this is The Aftermath. Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning into this episode of The Aftermath. Today, we're speaking with guest expert Patrick Brower. Patrick is a journalist and the author of the book Killdozer, the true story of the Colorado bulldozer rampage. He is the former editor and publisher of Sky High News. Brower personally covered almost all of the hearings and interactions relating to the Killdozer rampage before it took place. Brower was also a victim of the rampage and extensively covered the event itself, as well as its aftermath. He continues to live in Granby, Colorado. Let's hear what he has to say. Hi, Patrick. Thank you so much for joining us today. Hi, uh, my pleasure. So how long have you lived in Granby? And could you give us some context about the town? What's it like living in Granby? So uh, I've lived in Granby since 1979. And uh, Granby is a uh, the service hub for Grand County, which is mostly a tourism-based uh, mountain recreation county. There's also a significant amount of ranching in the west end of the county. So, uh, you know, we have a mixture of uh, outdoor activities, skiing, 
in the in the winter combined with snowmobiling. And then uh, uh, in the summer, there's, you know, fishing, hiking. We're at the Rocky Mountain National Park is in Grand County. There's a lot of national forest land here. There's a three lake region called Lake Granby, Grand Lake, Shadow Mountain Lake. Uh, it's sort of an outdoor paradise for a lot of people. Um, most of the people that live in Granby uh, are generally in the service industry. They mm. basically serve either the ranching community and or the tourism economy. And uh, the main schools for uh, East Grand County are in Granby, the, an elementary school, a middle school, and a high school. Um, the town has a population of a little over 2,000 people. Okay. The, county, the county overall has a population of just over 15,000. It's a it's a uh, it's a beautiful area. Um, the county is about 100 miles long, 50 miles wide, and there's only 14,000 people in it. So it's a uh, I mean 15,000 people in it. So it's a big place with not a whole lot of permanent residents. Sure. So how did you get involved working for Sky High News? Uh, what was your role in the newspaper? Well, I came up here to uh, take a job as a reporter and. Uh, photographer for the newspaper in 1979 and just uh, worked my way up to becoming a publisher and managing editor uh, within, uh, God, three years, four years, and uh, had an ownership share in the business later on. And uh, we basically really had three newspapers here, one in Winter Park, Fraser, one in Granby, Grand Lake, and one in Kremlin. But the main paper was the Sky High News in Granby. So when did you first meet Marvin Hemeyer? Uh, what was your first impression? I first met Marv when he was uh, announcing his plans to uh, put in a muffler shop in uh, a property he had purchased in Western Granby in about, that was 1993 when I first met him. And uh, we had talked about his new business, what he was going to do, and et cetera. Uh, and that's where I first met Marv. He was going to be an advertiser and uh, be in business in Granby. Ah, oh. so how involved was Marv in in the local town politics? Um, just right off the bat, in the uh, when you met him in '93. Well, up before that, he had talked to the uh, Granby Sanitation District, mm. which is not the town; it's a separate governmental entity that manages the uh, sewage and wastewater treatment in the Granby area. And he had uh, gone to them asking uh, first to be included in the district so he could hook his building up to the uh, sewage system. And secondly, he asked them for uh, uh, a service line that would connect his building to the sewage system. So the district annexed him into the district like he requested, but when he found out it would cost him uh, at least $75,000 to hook up to the system because the main line was more than 400 feet away from his building. Uh, he got angry and stormed out of the meeting thinking they were trying to reject him, but that was just the normal cost of hooking on to the system at that time. So he had been involved in that, and then he kind of wasn't involved much until uh, the gambling debate cropped up in Grand Lake, which is a town north of Granby. It's a very scenic town. It's the largest natural lake in Colorado, and it's definitely a summer resort community. That is actually where Marv Hemeyer lived. Oh. He lived in Grand Lake, but his um, muffler shop was in Granby. And uh, 
Marv was an avid snowmobiler and most of the snowmobiling activity goes out of Grand Lake. So that's where Marv ended up living. He had moved here from the Boulder, North Denver area. And uh, then Marv got involved in local politics there when a group of businessmen wanted to bring legalized gambling into Grand Lake. As people may recall, Colorado legalized gambling in three communities in 1994, 95. And uh, after those communities got it legalized, other towns thought of doing the same thing. Grand Lake wanted to. And then a big debate broke out in Grand Lake whether they should have legalized gambling or not. And Marv got heavily involved in the pro-gambling side. Mm. And there was also a very vociferous anti-gambling side in the debate. Um, the newspaper, uh, which I was the editor of, we took a strong stand against bringing legalized gambling to Grand Lake. And Marv was on the other side of that fight. He even launched his own newspaper. He called it the Grand Lake Gazette to voice the pro-gambling point of view and to attack our point of view, uh, opposing it. Wow. So Marv was involved in that uh, pretty extensively. That was a very, very contentious debate in the town. It eventually failed. So uh, gambling did not come to Grand Lake. And uh, yeah. So, so what did, did he have something to gain uh, or, or was he just interested in gambling? No, I think he felt that uh, Grand Lake was a town that needed an economic boost. Oh. And he thought that bringing gambling to the town would provide a needed economic boost to the town. Uh, aside from the fact that he owned a house up there, he didn't really stand to gain too much from, you know, the the spike in real estate prices that usually happens after gambling comes to a community. We were opposed to it because Grand Lake is the gateway to the western entrance to Rocky Mountain National Park. It's also right on the shores of uh, Colorado's largest natural lake. We thought it would ruin the uh, natural beauty and aesthetic of the town of Grand Lake. It just didn't seem to fit. Yeah. So could you help us understand the conflict between uh, Marv and fellow Granby citizen uh, Cody Dochev? Um, did the two of them know each other beforehand? How did this all come about? Marv originally met Cody Dochev at the auction where uh, he purchased the land where he put his muffler shop. Mm -hmm. Cody actually was at that auction as well, trying to buy the same piece of property. That was in 1991 in Denver. Uh, it was an auction of uh, distressed properties that uh, cropped up from the recession of 86, 87. Uh, Marv won that bidding battle at the auction and purchased the property. Cody was bidding against him and just didn't have enough money to uh, get the property. Cody had actually owned that property 10 years prior. He sold the business that was on that property to another guy. That guy went broke. Then the property ended up in the hands of the FDIC. Then it was auctioned. And Marv ended up buying the property there. And so right away, Marv tried to sell that property back to Cody for $20,000 more than he paid it at that auction. <laughs> So right away, Marv was trying to sell the property he had bought to Cody, uh, who owned a adjoining property, uh, at a, mark, a price higher than what had just been paid. And so over the years, from 92 on, uh, Marv continued to try to sell that two-acre parcel 
to Cody Dochef and his family because he knew that Cody wanted to put in a big concrete batch plant, an indoor concrete batch plant there at the site, and they needed more space to do it. And over the course of five years, six years, Marv would meet with them and they'd come up with the price on the property and then uh, seem to have an agreement. And then like a week later, Marv would have increased the price by, say, $100,000. And the dough chefs would say, ah, we can't afford that. No, thanks. Not only that, uh, because they had neighboring property, uh, Cody would work with Marv on getting access to his property or whatever. They were actually not bitter enemies at that point early on. Uh, they actually kind of worked together on a few issues down there at that property. Um, uh, but it all kind of came to a head uh, just before the uh, formal hearings for the concrete batch plant started to take place when Marv realized he had failed in selling his property to the Dochefs at highly marked up prices. And he threatened to uh, stop the concrete batch plant through the public hearing process if they didn't agree to buy the property at a really high price, like $400,000 that he wanted. And they just couldn't afford it and said, sorry. And then they bought another piece of property in the area rather than Mars. So I think Mars felt like he had negotiated his way out of a good deal um, and was frustrated and then became angry with them and fought their, their concrete plant. Is that when things started to get, do you think that's when things got personal with Marv uh, and the two of them in the the town board meetings? Well, it got personal with Marv and the Dochefs because Marv uh, basically recruited a bunch of local citizens to show up at town board meetings to protest the uh, establishment of a new concrete batch plant right next to Marv's property. Um, They had to go through a zoning change process and a land use change process which was a public process in front of the town board. Mm. So Marv organized a large uh, group of people, not that large, people in the neighborhood to fight the approval process. And that started and it went on for a good year and a half, two years where Marv, he hired a lawyer um, to fight them, uh, to stop them from uh, getting the approval for the plant. And Marv had uh, public support some public support at first, he would go out and get petitions going of people saying, oh, we're against this concrete batch plant. But as the process went through the town, uh, the Dochefs improved the plant to the point where it was palatable and acceptable to most people. So by the end of the hearing process, nobody was showing up at the hearings on Marv's side. And Marv was basically, uh, it looked like he was not going to be able to defeat the plant. At that point, Marv then filed suit. Mm. So he sued the town and he sued the Dochefs uh, over uh, the process that was used to get the plant approved. So Marv ultimately lost that lawsuit. Uh, It was in uh, county district court and it just did not pass with the, the court. He claims he spent about $55,000 on legal fees to fight the lawsuit. Basically, the court just said, you know, he didn't really have any standing and, and that the Dochefs had followed all the correct procedures and what the town had done and what the Dochefs had done was legal. And uh, 
he lost. And I think he felt uh, humiliated in the public eye at that point. Uh, and he felt that uh, the town had cheated mm. in a variety of ways in the process. Now, that's just what Marv thought. His lawyer couldn't prove it in the lawsuit. Marv never really proved it in the public domain until a few years later where he made up all these stories. He claimed that the town had secret meetings where they you know, plotted against him. He claimed that the town uh, used an illegal process to approve it. And he claimed that they uh, treated the Dochess with undue favoritism in the process, but none of which was proved in court. It was all thrown out. But he persisted in uh, that point of view. And the truth is, is that initially the town was on the fence about whether to uh, approve the batch plant because Marv actually had presented, you know, pretty strong arguments. But like I said, the Dochef Center approved the project to the point where uh, the town board ultimately approved the new plant. I see. And so he eventually did sell his muffler shop, correct? Um, he, yeah. Uh, in 2003, he worked out a deal to sell it to a company that was going to put a uh, trash operation there. And uh, he sold it for uh, $400,000, uh, which was a little bit less than 10 times more than he had paid for it just 10 years prior. Uh, so he did pretty well on the property. But by then, Marv had already decided he was going to uh, get back at the town and the Dochefs and everybody he thought had wronged him. And it didn't make any difference to him that difference to him then that he was finally able to sell his property at a good markup. Uh, in my opinion, uh, he decided, I think, to uh, launch some sort of uh, revenge and become a vigilante shortly after the final hearing where they approved the Dochef's process, and that was in January of two thousand one. He talks about it in the book that he was sitting in his hot tub feeling humiliated after seeing that he wasn't going to win the fight and that he's probably going to lose his lawsuit. And he just said, God told him to do something to get back at the town. That's when Marv really started to plot, I think his uh, rampage. So did anyone have any inkling of what was going on inside uh, the metal shop that he was living in after he sold the property? Uh, now looking back, you know, were there any signs? What did people think he was doing in there? Uh, Marv uh, put the dozer into that shop in late October, early November of uh, 2003. Um, he talks about it in his tapes, and uh, that's when he started working on it inside the shop. So he had been planning it before that. He had ordered materials and stuff before that, but he actually started building it probably in November of 2003. Okay, The rampage was June of 2004. So there was one time when people went into that shop for an insurance inspection because he actually was leasing back his own shed that he had sold to the new owners and he was leasing it back from them. So they had to do an insurance inspection and they went in there and saw that Marv was doing something to the dozer, but he made up a story about, oh, he was you know, trying to make a machine that would work in cold temperatures, et cetera. He also brags about that in his tapes. So people saw him working on something, but it didn't look like a tank yet. And that was the closest he got to being discovered. Nobody really knew what he was doing in there, I think, with the exception of one person. But I haven't been able to prove it. And uh, so Marv kept it pretty secret. He had surveillance cameras mounted outside the shed. 
he would work largely at night on it. Um, his goal was to do it in secret so no one would know what he was doing. Although he gave hints that he was going to bulldoze the town, and he said that to several people. Usually in passing, people just dismissed him and said, nah, you know, uh, they just didn't believe him. Right. And that's in the book. You know, you can see he did talk to a few people about it, but not in depth. Now, I know that you were one of his uh, targets and you were actually there when everything occurred. Um, you know, to the best of your ability, are, are you able to walk us through the events um, that occurred on June, June 4th, 2004? Sure, I'll go. I'll do it quickly here. Uh, yeah. At about 2.30, quarter of three on Friday, June 4th, uh, Marv drove his bulldozer tank out of the shed where he had built it. Um, in the bulldozer, he had attached uh, armor. So he attached uh, steel and then another layer of steel about six inches out from that. And in between the steel, he had poured concrete. So he had a shell casing around the cab of the bulldozer that was basically a layer of half-inch steel, four to five inches of concrete, and another layer of half-inch steel encasing the bulldozer entire uh, cab entirely. And then he also had mounted three to four cameras with inside monitors inside the tank. Uh, and then he'd also mounted in that three rifles. He had a 50 caliber rifle mounted out of the, the rear of the dozer. He had a 308 hunting rifle mounted in the front, shooting through a small embouchure. And on the uh, on the left side, he had a, uh, or on the right side, he had a 223 mini Ruger uh, semi-automatic rifle, semi-automatic rifle uh, mounted also in a little shooting port. So he had three rifles shooting outside the dozer. Anyway, he uh, crashed out of the building, went up and immediately destroyed uh, the concrete forming building at Middle Mountain Parks Concrete, which was right there next to where his shop used to be. And then he went over and destroyed the batch plant. Uh, in the course of going over to the batch plant, he got into a battle with Cody Dochev, who drove a front end loader and tried to stop him. Cody also, prior to that, had fired at the bulldozer once with the handgun. Then Cody jumped into his uh, front end loader to try to stop Marv. Uh, and uh, Marv fired at the front end loader. Wow. Uh, and uh, there are eight holes in the, uh, in the uh, bucket of the front end loader. Proof to that. He had armor piercing rounds in one of the weapons. Um, it's a miracle that uh, Cody wasn't hit because the bucket was up right in front of him when those fucking rounds were fired. Marv was then destroying the batch plant, going around it methodically. Before that, he had also fired a trooper, Dave Batura, with the Colorado State Patrol, fired five rounds with the 50 caliber at Batura, but they missed. They all went over his head, uh, probably because the dozer was just too high. And uh, as he was going around the batch plant, he also fired at uh, uh, Sergeant Rich Garner with the state, with the U.S. Uh, uh, Colorado, Grand County, Colorado Sheriff's Department. Fired two times at him with the 308. And then he also fired more from the 50 caliber at state troopers that were hiding behind some concrete barriers near the plant. And then he pushed those barriers over with the dozer. But luckily, they had all run away from behind those barriers. Otherwise, they would have been killed in the tumbling of that. After he destroyed the batch plant, he headed north and uh, east into town of Granby, smashed up a police car. Then he drove out onto Highway 40, went to Mountain Parks Electric, which was the local electric utility, smashed up the front of that building, 
In the meantime, uh, Under Sheriff Glenn Trainer had uh, managed to figure out a way to get on top of the dozer, and Trainer had fired several rounds from his handgun into what he thought were vulnerable spots in the armor on the top, but none of that worked. It just didn't work. They even tried to toss a uh, flashbang grenade down into the uh, smokestack of the dozer. That didn't work either. Marv just kept moving forward with Glenn Trainer on top of the dozer. If you can wow. imagine, there are photos of that. And uh, uh, Marv smashed up Mount Parks Electric. Then he went a little bit further east on Highway 40 and smashed up the offices of uh, Maple Street Builders, which was a construction company there on Highway 40. And then he went and went up the hill and turned left from Highway 40 and proceeded to smash up the town hall. That was where uh, Glenn Trainer jumped off. Interestingly, there were a bunch of children in the town hall in the basement only two or three minutes before Marv hit the building because the town hall then had the town hall up top and the county library below. There had been a reading hour, a kid, children's reading hour in the library just minutes before Marv hit it. They just got out just in the nick of time. Wow. And uh, Marv had no way of knowing that they were in there. Uh, uh, he could have easily killed them or severely injured them. He proceeded to destroy the town hall. The whole time then, police were running around outside of it trying to figure out how to stop the dozer. Finally, some of them noticed there were cameras mounted on the outside of the dozer, and they started shooting at them. But Marvin put a bulletproof flexan in front of these little cameras. So even though they shot at these uh, remote cameras that were mounted on the outside, it didn't really do much. Then Marv went and destroyed just the front corner of... Uh, Liberty Savings Bank, which was a bank on Highway 40, the main street in Granby. And then he proceeded to go east on Highway 40 and went to the Sky High News. On the way, he destroyed a few fence posts and uh, trees and uh, light posts on Highway 40. And the dozer was going along at about three to four miles per hour. The whole time he was surrounded by police, but they couldn't do anything to stop him. You know, there was no way they could stop him. Then uh, he proceeded to go to the Sky High News office, which where I was working that afternoon. I was in there with uh, one of my editors, uh, Harry Williamson. We were just hope thinking the dozer would drive right by the front of the building. And we were standing in there. And then Marv took a sharp right turn and smashed into the front of our building only 15 feet from where I was standing. Wow. It's a miracle uh, we didn't get run over. If we had tripped, I'm sure we would have been killed. But we didn't trip. And that was when we as the building was falling down around us, we ran out of the back. And then Marv proceeded to methodically just destroy our building. Uh, the front offices, especially, particularly the place where my office was. Marv had been into my office several times to talk to me about letters to the editor and his fight against the bash plan and working with the town. So he knew where things were in our building. Uh, Marv had a method to his madness. He was uh, only going into the buildings, usually four or five or six feet and backing out so that he wouldn't go in and get stuck. He would just go in and back out, go in and back out, go in and back out. And that's what he did at the Sky High News building. He smashed up around where our press was, but luckily he didn't severely damage our press. At this time, I ran out to take some photos, snap one shot, and then heard gunshots going off. Uh, heard rounds whistling, literally whistling over my head, and I thought I had better get out of here. Those were not shots by Marv. Those were shots by the sheriff's deputy shooting at the dozer trying to stop it. And I realized I could get hurt in crossfire, so I just left. I ran home to my wife and uh, uh, and got her out of our house because uh, my name was on his list. So uh, we were worried he was going to attack our house. 
anyway, then Marv proceeded to go further east and uh, went to the <clears throat> property of the Thompson and Sons Excavation Company. Uh, Dick Thompson had been the mayor of Granby when Marv had his hearings. He proceeded to destroy much of their property, uh, destroyed part of their warehouse where they destroyed a lot of their heavy equipment, knocked over a lot of their supply sheds and trailers, and then uh, destroyed their home where Thelma Thompson, their mother of the Thompson sons, had been sleeping only 20 minutes before. Luckily, they evacuated her. He completely destroyed that house, then destroyed an XL and uh, industry uh utilities building that was also owned by the Thompsons. Uh, and uh, then he got in a fight with uh, a, uh, a scraper, a big scraper that was owned by the county that was driven by Clark Branstetter, the county road and bridge supervisor. He tried to stop the dozer, but it was impossible. The dozer won the fight. And uh, then Marv stopped and sat for a little bit, let the engine cool off. I think he was noticing that he was overheating already. That's why he let it sit. Then he went down and uh, attempted to, uh, he went dropped down to the independent gas property, which was uh, a level a little bit below the town in the east part of town, mm-hmm. and uh, parked the dozer in such a way that allowed him to shoot at large propane tanks that were down. And this is a large batch plant for wow. propane tanks. And he fired uh, uh, at those tanks, I think, with the intention of making them explode. Um, uh, but, uh, luckily, um, he missed, uh, he was shooting into his own armor with this 50 caliber rifle and anyone that doesn't think that really happened, it's all documented on film fired by a Denver TV station. And, uh, he did manage though, however, to hit two transformers on a telephone pole nearby. I think his intention was to make those generate sparks that would then ignite the escaping gas from the propane tanks, therefore causing a large explosion. And this was all in a residential area. Uh, There was senior housing only 200 feet away, residential housing another 200 feet away. If he had managed to get those things to explode, I just can't imagine the devastation that would have happened. But uh, due to flaws in his own design and his inability to actually get the rounds from his 50 into those tanks, he failed in that task, but he certainly tried. After that, he had drove back into town, and uh, you can see on the film where just before he destroys Gambles, which was a department uh, hardware store, appliance store on Main Street in Granby, you can see where his property, uh, his tank starts to throw out a bunch of smoke, and uh, it wasn't really smoke, it was steam, his engine had overheated, and, uh, but he still had enough time to uh, destroy the building. And he methodically destroyed the Gambles building. All that's on film also. And uh, finally, he stalled while he was doing that. And uh, he also went into a little slight indentation where there was a small crawl space basement. He didn't really get stuck. If he hadn't stalled, he could have gotten out. But the engine overheated and just he couldn't drive it anymore. So he was sitting there in the back of the destroyed building surrounded by police and about three or four minutes after he got stuck there, they heard the retort of a gunshot from inside the tank. And uh, that's apparently when Marv shot himself one time with a 40, Magnum 44 pistol. Wow. And uh, that was when the rampage ended, although the suspense continued because nobody knew, first of all, how to get in there. 
and they thought he might have armed it to explode. So it was a dramatic process. Uh, Colorado National Guard tried to blow their way into the tank. That never that didn't work. They actually put three sets of shake charges on the tank, one to blade the treads, two to try to get into the tank. None of them penetrated the armor. Finally, at about 3 a.m. the next day, they were able to use a cutting torch to get into the top of the tank and get in there. And that's when they saw that Mara was in there dead. Uh, but they still didn't know if it was rigged with explosives, so they were all very cautious. But finally, they figured out, no, there were no explosives in there. And uh, they declared Marv dead, and they took his body out, you know, early Saturday morning the next day. Wow. I I mean, I can only imagine how traumatic that experience must have been. Um, what was the recovery like? How, how did the town pick up all the pieces? Well, the recovery... Uh, was long and difficult. Uh, first, the, the positive news is that uh, um, the town's Chamber of Commerce and others initiated a big fundraising campaign to collect money that could be used to help pay for repairs for the victims of the rampage and to help the town rebuild. Um, that thing, that effort raised uh, well more than a million dollars. That money went to victims and to the town and trying to rebuild uh, stuff that was damaged. Uh, there was even a, a Granby calendar effort uh, where uh, local women uh, posed uh, in semi-suggestive poses, uh, semi-clad, not totally naked. And they developed a calendar that they sold with all those proceeds to go to pay for damage to victims of the rampage. Um, uh, and then, uh, some of the uh, people that were damaged had insurance and some of them didn't. Mm. And sort of the typical process of trying to collect on insurance claims to, to fix buildings took place for many years after the rampage. Uh, some people had good coverage, some didn't. You know, Casey at Gambles, for instance, uh, was only partially covered. So he had to figure a way to recoup a lot of losses. We at the newspaper had good insurance and, uh, we're able to, uh, it still cost us a lot of money, mainly because of lost business that took place, mainly in our printing plant because of Mar. Uh, the Dochefs had some insurance, but they had a little bit of a, a dispute with how to get their stuff rebuilt. The town got into a dispute with their insurer about paying to rebuild the town hall, but they did eventually get that money. Mm. Um, all in all, I figure Marv cost the town about $10 million. Wow. Uh, some of which was recovered insurance, some of which was not. Um, and uh, th then there was the whole debate afterwards, and this is what really prompted me to want to write the book, is that people right away were praying Marv as a hero, saying he was uh, just wronged by the town and the people here, and that he was right in going out and getting revenge, that all he wanted to do was destroy property, not hurt people. And he was immediately being elevated into sort of an anti-hero right away. Uh, and uh, I mean, the, the, the day of the rampage, there was radio commentary in the town where a woman was saying Marv was just a great cuddly guy. And he wouldn't hurt anybody. But that was all belied by the facts of him shooting at people and destroying buildings where it could have easily killed people. Marv is now still a hero of the anti-government right. Uh, mainly because they think they believe Marv's narrative, which says he was wronged by government mm. and uh, the people here 
Uh, and I, I have to tell you, I sat through all those meetings and hearings and he wasn't treated shabbily. He just didn't win. He chose a fight that he couldn't win. And when he lost, he uh, decided he was going to get back at the town and the community in a very violent way, um, spectacular way, too. And uh, um, the, the idea that somehow he didn't want to hurt people is absurd on its face when you think that he had all those firearms mounted in the, mounted in the tank and that he destroyed these buildings where he wouldn't have known whether he hurt people. And he did shoot at people. Absolutely. <laughs> so, you know, it's, uh, um, but Marv crafted a very uh, captivating narrative mm. that painted himself as a victim of government and a victim of uh, society and small town uh, backstabbing, uh, which I have to say, I just didn't see. I mean, Marv had friends. Uh, he just chose a fight that he couldn't win. Yeah. And, uh, you know, uh, I made it onto his list twice. I think I'm the only one that made it on his list twice. But, um, you know, I dealt with Marv directly many times. Uh, I had had business dealings with him. Mm -hmm. I rented equipment from him here and there. Uh, I met with him many times over letters to the editor that he wanted to run in the newspaper. He had well more than an opportunity to present his point of view over the course of the whole uh, process with the town. And... Uh, you know, he just didn't win. Um, yeah. So this is something that we ask all of our guest experts. Um, and I'm curious to, uh, to know what you would say, how you would answer this. Um, at the end of the day, if you had to pick a person or thing, it could be a concept uh, that you think is to blame for the rampage that caused all of the destruction in Granby. Who or what would that be? That would be Mar Marv's vulnerability to his own conspiracy theories against the town. He actually believed these lies he created about the way he was treated to justify this act of uh, vigilante justice. Wow, Pat, thank you so much for uh, speaking with us today and uh, for all of your insight. Sure. Thanks for taking the time. The book is called Killdozer, the true story of the Colorado Bulldozer Rampage. You can get it on Amazon or... We'll make sure to add the link to our show. That'd be notes. great if you could. Anyway, <laughs> it's always good to sell books, you know? Absolutely. <laughs> Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. 
PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all have stress and anxiety we carry around as we go about our everyday life. At The Alarmist, we know it's always better to say it out loud and talk it through. Whenever I stress about the sinking of the Titanic, I don't sit with those thoughts in a dark room. I turn on the lights and dive right into it. Therapy is a great place to get things off your chest and work through what's really going on. Maybe you can't stop spiraling or catastrophizing. I started therapy over 10 years ago and never looked back. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Heck, we sometimes change our minds and rethink the verdict at The Alarmist. And that's also okay when it comes to therapists. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com Alarmist today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Alarmist. With us today, we have producer Clayton Early. Hello. And fact checker Chris Smith. Hi. I mean, it was absolutely um incredible to Mm -hmm. um to talk to patrick and and get that kind of um just uh information and and Mm -hmm. that you know have him relive and retell his experience of 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 what that uh must have been like i mean i can't imagine the 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 fear honestly yeah that goes through your mind when your whole town is in danger and your family and your loved ones i mean terrifying yeah i know and so interesting that this guy lived with him for i mean lived there since 79 and has known this guy from like his his entire tenure in the town he's known this guy worked with him because he was the someone who worked at the paper like talk about someone on the ground (laughs) yeah yep you know it's people you it's your you know people you live with people you know for years and years and years Mm -hmm. you don't think that this could possibly happen but i guess it can i missed the original record this episode. So I don't know what all, what all you guys talked about or what all you got into. I just have my one question is, did you guys include Marvin on the board uh, of uh, <laughs> people to blame for this rampage? We did. did we you, did uh, include don't him. Don't tell me who, who you picked at the end. Okay. I just want to make sure that Marvin's <laughs> name got up there because I didn't want to make the same Charles Manson murders mistakes that we do. They, they, we leave out the actual rampager. <laughs> we did not. Uh, not this time. Okay. You no, know, what we did end up sending, I'm, we have to tell you, Chris, sorry, spoiler alert. Mm-hmm. But Clayton, could you remind us what we did end up uh, yes. sending to the alarmist jail? Uh, for this episode, we threw white male entitlement in the alarmist jail and we gave the big slap to wow. harboring a personal grudge. Mm-hmm. Wow. And we felt like Marvin really encapsulated that the essence of <laughs> white male entitlement, which I guess entitlement has been thrown in the jail before, but not specifically white male entitlement, which is its definitely its own breed of entitlement. Interesting. You, you look, I got, I'm, yeah. I'm excited to listen to the episode and see how you guys arrived at that. But yeah, that's fascinating. I mean, 
there were just this episode, we're recording this a day after the episode uh, came out. And um, just we've already gotten some uh, feedback, some comments on our Instagram. Uh, People, uh, there was a Jamma Kiss who wrote in and said, you know, that they couldn't believe we didn't put Marv. Uh, <laughs> in the alarmist jail, which fair enough, fair enough. Sure, um, his entitlement. But there. I was just fascinated by Patrick's response to that question. Mm-hmm. Right, I really that to me too is like the tragedy of it all. Like him, him using the word vulnerability. Yes, you know his own vulnerability to this conspiracy theories. Like this is what it means when people are victim to misinformation, even yes. if it's the if. Even if you're the inventor of the misinformation, it's really upsetting when people, for example, we talked about this on the original episode, but would storm a Capitol building because of lies. You know, like these people are doing destructive things because they are believing something that is simply not true and how dangerous and scary that can be. In a way, they fell victim to themselves and Mm -hmm. to their own beliefs. It's Mm -hmm. like they lost that sense of you know, I don't know what it, you can call it. Reason? Reality. Yeah. Reason? Yeah. yeah. Well, and did you guys, speaking of Marvin's frail, frailty, did you guys talk at all about his, his frailty of just ego uh, where he, I mean, as Patrick mm-hmm. outlined, which by the way, excellent, excellent job by Patrick. And uh, it made me realize that journalists are the historians of the present, aren't they? I mean, he had the <laughs> That's same, right. he had the same, That's right. he had this, well, he has the same thoroughness and, sort of threshold for for capacity for facts and fact-based um presentation mm-hmm. of, of of these events than that that you would have from an, an historian so i just thought it was uh, a great interview but i also just uh wanted to just circle back this frailty of his ego where here you have a guy who made a purchase and then when he was told he needed to connect to a sewer line and he needed an extra seventy five thousand dollars, maybe he didn't account for that but it really feels like that was the beginning of the end he thought and from there, all this conspiracy theory came out, all this I'm being is basically buyer's remorse. But it was like, I'm right. I'm I'm being taken advantage of. I was going to say to, to what you're saying, I thought it was just really interesting that I don't think we had heard before was the idea that as soon as Marv bought that parcel of land in the auction that he immediately tried to turn around and sell it for $20,000 more to the Dochevs who had originally owned it. And that to me just... That's very telling. Yes. Oh, yeah. That Like th- this guy is trying to, you know, originally I think we thought that wasn't happening until years later. But the fact that it right. was like, oh, sure, I'll sell it to you for some, like for a quick turnaround. Like there was this some kind of idea that he's trying to make a buck or that people are trying to, you know, I, I don't know, that uh, paranoia there, I guess. I guess you're right. And and I yeah. also feel like that, that um, what Patrick was telling us about his, um, the, it, it kind of did stem from the gambling debate, right? Mm-hmm. That that was very early on, even before the land disputes, uh-huh. you know, mm-hmm. it was this idea that people were against him, right? And that he didn't, the fact that he took out a newspaper um, to, because he felt like he needed to yeah. get his point of view out and, you know, well, he, or he started a newspaper, yeah. It felt like he was it's already series, kind of creating that narrative of the town being against him. Right. Mm. It, kind, it kind of was, he went through a series of humiliating losses, right? And he sort of, right. he, he sort of lost so much face in this small town 
that you know what I mean? He found there there was no no way out. That to me is sort of one of the stronger narratives. Like he took the wrong side of this. I mean, what he deemed to be a bad deal on a piece of property. And you're right. He picked the wrong right. side of this of this gambling debate. And then as things went on, he kept wanting more money, more money. He he didn't want to lose more face. And then, you know, it really just felt like his ego was was one to me yeah. as was one of the most um, was was his Achilles heel in this scenario. Mm-hmm. You know, in talking about it right now, it I, I can't help but think he really would have benefited from like listening or, or reading some of Brené Brown's uh, books. <laughs> Uh, like he he would have got, gotten a lot from reading The Gifts of Imperfection or, you know, even just listening to her podcast, because it feels like he just went down a classic shame spiral um, to the point where he had to create this reality or or, or this other world where um, in order to, you know, tell himself, get him out of this shame spiral, um, which really was just a hurt ego and um yeah just i mean it's very sad when you think about it Mm -hmm. yeah Hmm. very sad he didn't have the tools he just didn't have the tools to help himself (laughs) at this point i'm sorry (laughs) move on move on i mean yes or the friends or the friends who i mean i know he had some people who we talked about this that he bulldozed or snowmobiled with but no, unfortunate that none of them, and perhaps maybe they weren't quite aware of the extent of it, but that none of them were able to step in and be like, hey, like, let's redirect, let's refocus, you know, let's refocus yes. this energy because it's all yeah. pretty toxic. Yeah. Prioritize. Yeah. He yeah. could have really benefited from, <laughs> I mean, I don't know, some uh, a group therapy or just really just a therapist, um, someone to talk to and help him through it. But I will say just a just a very side note. We talk a lot about regulations and construction and all that stuff. As this concrete plant that was going up next to Marvin was getting built, Marvin kept coming with you know the community members trying to make sure that they have all their ducks in a row, and they ended up having a better presentation and getting it passed. Right? Uh-huh. There was that whole mm-hmm. side story that mm-hmm. happened with it. Yeah. But that's a you, you kind of need a Marvin. You know, these towns need a some. But like Marvin to keep all these these uh, corporations and companies honest uh, yeah. about what they're building and what they're doing in their building. So, you know, well, I don't to, know. to a certain extent. Yeah. yeah. You uh, want a Marvin who's actually invested in the town's <laughs> yes, safety, not yeah. trying to win his own personal agenda. Absolutely. It's good. I think. And this is what's really good. I think on, that speaks well of the town. They weren't like just anti everything they said. They're like, oh, wow, that's a good point. We should make the Dochefs address like the sand right. that might be a result of their. Right. Like, we should- and he yeah. almost yeah. did win a lot of these. Uh, yeah. So they did made- make improvements because yeah. of his complaints, which I think is kind of points to their their actual earnestness in trying to deal with his complaints. Absolutely. Right. And and when I you agree. see when you we're not against speaking out and and uh, thoughtful discussion. Right. Mm-hmm. Where right. different points are made. You know, it's it's right. when when it, be, you know, turns into violence um, and destruction. Oh God, of course. Um, yeah. it's, it's just absolutely, um, you know, terrifying and terrible. Um, yeah. Now, we don't have that much time. Uh, I think I think we should take. Patrick's response and I think we should change the verdict. 
I know this is crazy. And send Marv's vulnerability to his own conspiracy theories about the town to the alarmist jail. Because um, here's what I think. Um, I think the entitlement kind of folds into him coming, having to come up with these theories. Mm, right. What do you think? Well, you know what it is? You know, I, 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 in my mind, entitlement plays into, and you guys tell me how you guys arrived at it, but my mind, entitlement plays into ego. Um, and ego is something that could drive these sort of conspiracy theories too, right? Obviously, That's true. he thinks they're meeting behind his back. They, he thinks they're plotting against him. What is the common denominator? It's him. It's like he's there. Perhaps he's it's the one they're talking Marv's- about. Yeah, perhaps it's Marv's white entitlement. <laughs> I white feel like entitlement. I, yeah, <laughs> I see. I feel entitlement feeds ego. I don't feel like. I mean, I, I guess it depends on the person. But to me, it's like, and I think specifically this the this idea of white male entitlement. I mean, we are speaking as a white man. Like, even though we don't like to talk about it, we benefit from the most privilege in this country. And for this guy to come into this small town and just think that he can just, he wants to do something and be told no, that sense of, you know, instead of actually contemplating like, okay, well, maybe there's a reason why. And him to come up with a conspiracy theory to explain why he didn't get what he wants kind of speaks to me to this sense of like, I don't know, feeling like you own everything and deserve whatever it is that you want. And there's just no way that you shouldn't get that. And I do feel like, I mean, like ego, I don't know. Like I'm thinking like, it doesn't, it's hard to say that this guy came into town with a big old ego. Like, Oh, look what I'm going to do to Granby. Right, right. You know what I mean? Like I'm a hot shot from Boulder coming to small town Granby. Like that to me seems like a different narrative. Mm, Yes. Uh Uh-huh. I understand what you're saying. So I don't know. Yeah, I guess so. I, I don't know. They seem to be those two words to me are very similar, but they're very I, I similar. Know what you mean, I, I, I think, I, um, I, I, yeah. you know, I, I could, I could be convinced. So what are we going to do here? I mean, I mean to I mean, me, I don't know. I at least include his name in the, in the, in the verdict. Don't you think? I mean, yeah, that, that, this is my instinct. Mm-hmm, this, mm-hmm. this, this idiot was not your regular moron. This was a very specific kind of idiot. You know what I mean? Like, there's nobody that's built a, a tank of tank mm-hmm. bulldoze, a tank dozer yeah. before rampage through a town. And I want to point out that, you know, this, you know, not all white males no. fall, fall victim to no. their white male, in, inherent white male entitlement. You know, like but it's a sickness that some is, people get sick absolutely, with. Absolutely. Absolutely. So mm-hmm. it's something if you do happen to be a white male, something to, something to be aware of. Um Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, just Chris is yeah, laughing. I, I would agree. I would agree. I don't. I do not. Um, it's a pre. Like, this is this is a very unique. This is a very unique person and mental yeah. case. Mm-hmm. That kind of yeah. that that whereby this event unfolded. So then, do we are we are we losing uh, the personal grudge aspect and throwing Marv's mm. vulnerability in jail and slapping? I think actually what we should do is throw uh, Marv's white male entitlement into just add Marv's white male entitlement. Okay. 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 And we'll keep the slap as is. 
Okay. So I'll call it. Okay. Marv's white male entitlement. You're going to the alarmist jail. Now, there are different forms of entitlement that are in the alarmist jail right now. It's the first one that belongs to Marv. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I want to thank Patrick again for being our guest. Wonderful, wonderful conversation and interview. And uh, yeah, stay tuned because next week we're going to be discussing Valerie Solanas and the attempted murder of Andy Warhol. Stay tuned. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.